Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Okay, we're going to be in Joshua 22 tonight, picking up where we left off. Uh, it reads, verse 1, Then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I commanded you. And you haven't left your brethren these many days, up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord. And now the Lord your God has given you rest, given rest to your brethren, as he promised them. Now, therefore, return, go to your tents, and to the land of your possession, which the Lord, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Because God didn't give them this land. He gave them, he wanted them to be in the promised land, uh, but he didn't give them this land. So back in Numbers 32, uh, the Reubenites, the Gadites, half-tribe Manasseh, they were looking at the land of Bashan, Gilead, that area that they had uh, they were attacked, and they won, and therefore had control of that part of the land. And they saw it, and they thought, this looks really good for our sheep. It's really appealing. It, it, in every worldly sense, it, it, it appears to be the kind of land that you'd want to settle on. Uh, so they asked Moses for this land, back, in, and, and, and they promised that they'll do whatever their Lord commands, back in Numbers 32, 25. And on that condition, Moses grants them the land. Part of the condition was, as we go fight to take the promised land, you need to come and help with that. You need to, in fact, be out in front. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh become, uh, they're a strong tribe. They're, they're a tribe that's known for their ability to do battle. The, the men of those tribes are, are strong warriors, and they take the foreground. They take the vanguard of the force of Israel in, a, in, a, in situations where there's combat or battle to be had. Um, so they've been doing that. They've been staying and helping with them. Uh, by all reckonings, they've now been with Joshua in the Holy Land for about seven years. So this time of peace that they're talking about, this rest for the brethren, has been a rest for, they're kind of waiting to see if anything else will happen. Uh, but the major Canaanite armies were defeated, and there hasn't been one that has risen and taken on that role uh, since that time. So they've stayed, they've helped. Joshua calls them in and talks to them about what they've done. They've kept the charge, verse 3. So their obedience and their loyalty their, to, to, to God, to Joshua, to the brethren, the family, uh, is commendable. And they are to be, uh, there's no accounts of murmuring, there's no complaining, there's no rebellion like there was in the wilderness. And so you have this situation, which from 2020, we know this is the first church split in history. The body of God, the family of Christ, the children of Israel are going to split into two groups in this chapter. So this fits with Joshua. Ye Jehovah has brought them to the boundary. He's had them, helped them come into the promised land. He's fought all their battles. Uh, they have dominion over this land. Uh, and Joshua, Jehovah is an image of Jesus. The battle's already been won. And frankly, it's, it's been taken care of largely even without the Reubenites and the Gadites. God has won the battles for them. They've found rest. They've found peace. 
They're enjoying the blessings that God promised them. And in previous chapters, we saw that God kept every single one of those promises. He hasn't missed a beat with these folks. So he's done everything they can do. And for seven years, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have been hanging out with Israel. They've been staying with the kingdom. So you have people that have been in the same fellowship for seven years. But at this point, there's something that's not going smoothly with that. Like they haven't taken a portion. So they didn't take a lot. Um, so God has not assigned them an inheritance in this land. They have a possession that they've claimed because they asked for it elsewhere. And it seems like there's some restlessness there. Look at the language in verse four. God's given rest to your brethren, which implies he has that Joshua sensing these people haven't found a rest. They haven't just been at peace. And we see that all the time. You can be in a fellowship or in a church for years, even seven years. And after those amount of years, there's a discontentment that comes up with some people. When their hearts aren't on God, the tendency of human nature is to want something bigger or better than just that simple rest or peace that God gives. So Joshua is using terms that, that imply family. In verses 3 and 4, he says, brethren, which means your family, your brothers and sisters, right? The, the body of Christ is like a family, and Joshua calls them that. So in the body, sometimes you get people that, that they're not at rest. They haven't made friends. They haven't made connections. They haven't jumped in on, you know, just living day-to-day -day life together. There's a restlessness to people. So a pastor can do this. They can call in a group of people or a person and say, look, you've been here for seven years, but just doesn't seem like you're at home. Doesn't seem like you're settling in. Everybody else is content and at rest, but you're not. So what do you, maybe you need to just go wherever your heart really wants to be. If you want to be over at that other church, then go be there uh, and, and, and find your home because we want what's best for you, right? So this can happen. The danger of bringing people in and commending them like Joshua does, and I think Joshua knows this is a danger. He says everything that's true. You've been faithful. You've kept the, you've obeyed my voice. You haven't left the brethren, which implies that Joshua can speak to them and they're responsive to it. So they've actually been listening to him. They've been coming to the tabernacle. They've been enjoying the feasts that have, you know, routinely happened. Um, and when, as soon as Jehovah says, well done, even to veterans, even to, to tribal leaders, right? So people with leadership roles that have a good testimony, um, this can be the beginning of the end. Uh, this can be something where you've identified someone who's doing all the right things, um, they're blameless, like 1 Timothy 3, 2. A bishop must be blameless, but let those also be first be tested. Let them serve as deacons and then found blameless in that. So in order to move someone into leadership roles in the church, you need to identify truthfully that they're blameless. They've been doing all the right things. They're taking care of their family. They're faithfully there. They're ministering to other people just naturally because they have an abundance of the Holy Spirit overflowing in their life. So you call them in and say, you know what? You're doing all the right things. And one of two things can happen. One, in Christ, they can be humble about that and say, oh, thank you very much. That's awesome. I love serving. It's what the Holy Spirit has me doing, and I'm content. The other thing that can happen is people then think, well, yeah, I should be doing my own thing. And they, they, should, they, you know, they should be starting their own church. And that's not a negative thing. That can be a good thing. If in the Holy Spirit, maybe it is time to have two churches instead of one. Because that's how the church multiplies. It's how it's multiplied all over the planet. 
So this can happen in very, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, verses one through four, we don't know if this is a negative or a positive thing. The only indication is the Lord's given rest to your brethren, implying that Joshua knows that they're restless, right? That they haven't found that rest yet. So he, he commends them, he rewards them, and he kind of says, maybe it's time for you guys to go do your own thing. And that's not a bad thing, and it can be positive as long as they stick to the word of God. So ultimately, they're free to go. And I can't get through this without pointing out the very strong connection, because I think this is the chapter that Tolkien's kind of reading. When you have these people that made oaths a generation ago that had to fight for the good guys um, and keep their oaths, and Aragorn goes into the halls of the dead and he finds this army of, of people that aren't really alive, right? They're, they're, they're dead. And they are needed to go fight for uh, the good people. And Aragorn brings them along, and ultimately they beat the orcs, and they win the battles, and they do their job. And they are compliant and faithful where they weren't faithful before. And that looks a lot like Reuben, Cad, and Manasseh here. They're not faithful in that they want land outside the promised land. They are faithful in that they kept their promise to Moses, and they've, they've satisfied that vow. So at the end of uh, Return of the King, Aragorn frees them from their oaths and says, you guys are free. And of course, Gimli the dwarf says, I don't know, these guys are pretty good in a fight, which again, Reuben, Gad, Manus are pretty good in a fight. What if we need them in the future? And like a good king, Aragorn releases them. And that's what Joshua's doing right now. You guys are free to go. You don't, everybody else has found rest. You guys haven't, you're good to go. You've done everything you promised you'd do. You've been faithful in all regards. So that's kind of the first four views. That sets up a chapter here where, and again, we're looking at it 2020. We know this is going to go bad. We know that what these tribes want is not the plan of God. They're doing stuff in the flesh. But at this point, they're blameless. They've done nothing wrong. They have liberty. We have liberty in Christ. This has made us free. But don't let that entangle you in the yoke of bondage. This is a tough situation for pastors. Joshua's going to, in verse 5, he's going to admonish them, he's going to bless them, he's going to set them up. But this is a church split, make no mistake about it. And it's not a good church split. It's going to be one in the flesh. Um, which makes, I think, today, it makes pastors very hesitant to praise people. Like, I could praise Casey for planning the summer retreat, but if he did it for the Lord, he doesn't need my praise. If he's doing it for me or to please other people, that praise is going to puff him up with pride. So it's a... It's a tough thing in the church. We use language like, you know, I was really blessed by that thing you did to let people know that what they're doing is also connecting me to God too. And that language kind of, it's not really, hey, thank you for what you're doing. It's more, I'm really blessed by it. I know so-and-so that was blessed by it, which is another way to say thank you. But it's one of those kind of moments where we wonder what to do with that because praise can lead to pride. Um, celebrating or praising God for the people that are around us, uh, hopefully doesn't have that same temptation all the time. But here Joshua is going to admonish them. So you guys are going on your way. The implied answer is that they're going to take off here. We don't. There's no record that they say that. But I think Joshua called them in because he knew they wanted to. Um, but verse 5, he does, I think, what good pastors do in these situations, is that you admonish, you bless, and you set them up with whatever you can to help them be successful. So verse 5, here's the admonishment. But take careful heed to do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. 
So that's a nice, succinct summary of what to do with our lives. When rest comes, here's the things we do. When th everything's at peace, then do this. And the three commandments are really clear. Take heed. Actually, there's five here. Take heed which to the commandment of the law, which is the word of God that they have at this point in history. Uh, Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded us through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They got the five books of the Bible. Do what those books say. In fact, at this point in our Bible study, we know the will of God for our lives. Every, pretty much the law of God covers everything. And through this chapter, we're going to see it get applied. Like it actually applies to every situation if you apply it in the spirit and correctly as God intended us to. So take heed to it, which is to guard it, to watch it. The command of the Lord of God so far. Um, it says, take careful heed. Me'od shamar. Me'od is diligent attention to do something with force, with exceeding force. So take careful, exceeding force, holding to the word of God. You keep that charge, uh, heed, is to is samar we've seen that word before to do it uh to do it like a soldier do it like it's your duty and that 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 you'll be court-martialed if you don't stick to the word of god it's important then he says love the lord your god you can't stick to the word of god you can't love the lord your god if you don't know what he says i can't love somebody if i've never met them right it's very hard to do love in the abstract so the, these go in order and there's a progression to these. If you try to just love the Lord your God and you don't know anything about the word of God, you've just fallen prey to emotionalism, right? So you, you're now in a thing that looks like a church, but it's not a church. It's just a bunch of people getting emotional every week. And it's not necessarily the way that God has commanded in the first five books of the Bible. Or even what Jesus says, it's the same God in the New Testament, right? So... If you try to do these out of order, you, you fall prey to certain things. So you love, you take heed, careful heed for it. You love the Lord your God. It implies that, that, that he comes first in our hearts. Um, then we walk in his ways. We don't just read it and love God. We also do what the word of God says. We, and that's how we show love for the Lord. If we try to walk in his ways without love, that's works-based theology. We're doing things, but love and abundance of love is not present. We keep his, we walk in his ways, which was, is to, to live life in a certain way and keep his commands, which is to do those commandments. We do them and then we keep them and we hold them, right? Samar here is the same word. To keep it is to keep it like a soldier. So we personally walk in his ways, but then we keep his commands is to actually guard over those commands like a soldier. Pass it on to the next generation. Be diligent in keeping those commands. Hold fast is an emphatic version of this. Not only do we walk in his ways and just keep his commands for those around us and our family, we also hold fast to it. We cling to it. It's like glue. The word there in the Hebrew is implies adherence or sticking to something to pursue after it and catch it and then hold on to it for dear life, right? Like a little kid grabbing their dad's ankle and getting dragged around on the floor for fun, right? It's not only our heart, and, but it's our soul. And then last in this passage, this admonishment, serve him. May your actions be something that serves the work of God. So commit your thinking to God and in the first thing, and then commit your will to God. Or Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And Joshua expands on that, but it's the same idea. You can't just serve God and not have the other things in place. It has to be heart, mind, and soul. And frankly, that begins with the word of God. 
Heed him, love him, walk, keep, hold, serve. Six things, actually, not five. So in this sense, Joshua gives them everything they need to be successful. And he's doing it because he loves them and he wants them to be successful. And you got people that are restless and they're ready to go and leave the fellowship. Sometimes that's God calling them and stirring the nest like missionaries. And you want to make sure you're saying to those missionaries, hey, stick to the word of God. When you're off talking to these other people, don't get lost in their ways. Have something that they can get lost in God's ways. And stick to them. Adhere to them like glue. Because you won't be surrounded by fellowship. You won't be near the tabernacle. You won't be close to the feasts and the festivals. Those things that keep most people on track are now not there for you anymore. So you better stick to the word of God. In fact, here's a copy of the scrolls that we made just for you. So fall in love with God's words. Love them. Walk the way they tell you to walk. Then guard over it. And when you're in doubt, read some more. When people get cut off from the kingdom, there's great liberty there. Uh, like Paul says in Galatians 5:12, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only don't use that liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. Minister to one another. Start a church and be doing that in such a way that you love each other. So when people want to leave a fellowship, this is really the only thing a pastor can do is wish them well. And in fact, in verse 6, he's going to bless them too. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and, and they went to their tents. We don't have a copy of the blessing. It was private, personal, um, but he basically prayed for them and blessed them. Uh, when we see Jacob blessing people in Genesis 49, he puts his hand on them to bless them, uh, and that's all recorded in Genesis 49. Um, so it, it implies that the same kind of thing's happening here. He's praying for them. He's wishing well for them. Um, and he blesses them because that's all you can do when your kids grow up and move out of the house all you can do is admonish them stick to the word of God love the Lord follow your heart mind and soul and you can bless them I want to put a blessing on you because you deserve it you've been faithful you've done everything right you've stuck to the ways you should you've been a good child so you send them off and you trust them into God's hands and when we bless people we're entrusting them into God's hands and we're praying for them that we can do it. When Britta was getting ready to go off to training, and we'll get one more chance to do this, we prayed for her because she's leaving the fellowship. And again, in, in this sense, that's a really good thing because God's calling her to do something. So we have to assume the best of people, that God's calling them because, and, and they're stirred and restless because God's called them. So she's going to go off and do what she's been called to do, but we had her come up, we laid hands, we prayed for her, and we sent her off with that blessing because that's really important. So we see a model of that here in the word of God. He's going to do the same thing. Uh, and by the way, blessing people is an unlimited resource. And we don't have to just wait for people to leave to do that. In fact, we should come to church every week thinking to ourselves, how can we bless people? Who in this room needs a blessing today? And how can I do that? And when you live your life looking for opportunities to bless people, you are much closer to God's plan for your life. It's a wonderful thing to do there. So this is a faithful group, and they're deciding to go off, and he sends them with the blessing. Or, you know, part of the Irish tradition was these kinds of whole books filled with blessings. And because there wasn't in he, one in here written it, it, that's kept, in order to get the spirit of this verse 6 and that blessing, here's an Irish blessing, right? Because Irish people during the potato famine had to say goodbye to young people all the time. And when they say goodbye, it was for the rest of their life. Because all of Ireland was in turmoil and thousands of people were coming over to America. So when they were saying goodbye to their, their parents and their grandparents, they were saying goodbye forever. 
So these blessings became things that they would write down, they would remember them, they would hold them tight because life was going to get tough. Coming to America was not going to be easy. They're going to be living in the slums of New York for a while and trying to work their way up in the system, but at least they had liberty to go and try to pursue a better life for themselves. But here's one of the blessings that's part of that tradition. And, and you may have heard this already. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind always be at your back. May the sun shine warm on your face and rains fall soft on your fields. Until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. A blessing. Because that's what we wish for each other, that God holds you. Because we're going to hand you over to God and may he be the one that keeps you. So it, in Acts 15, 25, they did it with one accord. So it seemed good to them being assembled with one accord to send men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So there's this idea that even the early church would send people off, but when they did it, they did it as a congregation and they did it with one accord. We all want to bless these people and we have a heart together. And boy, when you get human beings to agree on anything, that's the Holy Spirit. That we are in agreement to send these people off with a blessing. That's the Holy Spirit moving amongst his body. And it's not flashy, but it's beautiful and it's wonderful. Verse 7, then he's going to hook them up. He's going to set them up ready for success. Now the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given as a possession in Bashan. But to the other half of it, Joshua gave a possession among their brethren on this side of the Jordan. Westward, and indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them and spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tents, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze, with iron, and with very much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. In other words, before you leave, take your share of the spoils. You get full share. doesn't matter if you're going to stay here in the promised land. You helped with the fight, and even if you stayed back in the camp, right? <laughs> the law says you get a portion of that share no matter what. So in Numbers 31, 27, if you want the reference on that. So it doesn't matter if you fought in the battle or if you stayed with the camp, you get a share of the blessings. And Joshua's following the law. He's modeling that, that way of God that he's laid out for him. So he's doing what he's told. Um, an interesting thing though about verse seven, I want to go back to that just a second. The word possession there is not actually in verse seven. So it's in italics, uh, and it says Joshua gave among their brethren is how that should read. The word's not actually there. I think in context, it's easy to read this as in relation to the land. But if you're reading this as a church split, Joshua's making a, an important distinction here, right? So in verse five, now the half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given in Bashan. Uh, so Moses gave them in Bashan is how that should read right? So it's not an inheritance of God. And Joshua doesn't use language that would even imply that at, at the beginning. That land in Bashan is not what God wants for these people. It never was. And we need to read this chapter knowing that that's true. And the word possession there is added to give an object to the noun because the sentence doesn't have an object. In other words, Moses gave you or allowed you to do this because they were asking for it, something they wanted. They approached Moses and asked for it. So Moses relented to them, but it's not what God said. It wasn't Moses' will to do that in the first place, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that was there. So Moses allowed it, but there's no object to the noun for a reason. He didn't actually give anything, right? It says among their brethren, 
uh, in the next part, the second part of the verse, but to the other side, Joshua gave among their brethren on this side of the Georgian. This is really a beautiful thought when you take out the, the possession part. If it stops being about the land, then what God gives is he gives them an inheritance in Canaan, but that inheritance isn't, inheritance isn't necessarily land. Like Simeon's got cities, they don't get their own land because they're just scattered throughout Judea. And so, but the better way to read that second part of the verse is, but, but the half there gave Joshua among brothers on this side. So half of the tribe of Manasseh, and this is kind of neat, actually chooses to be in the Holy Land. And they get a portion. In fact, they get a large portion if you look at the map. And Joshua gives them not land, but he gives them fellowship. He gives them among their brethren is the sentence. I just think this is a wonderful idea. So since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. If what you want is God's inheritance, then amen to that. Like if you want more spiritual gifts, let's start praying for that because we want you to have all those things. And, we, and if your heart is in the right place, if your zeal is in the right place, wonderful. So I think it's important here that Joshua's pointing out that Moses relented to you in Bashan, but I gave fellowship to this other group here in, in the promised land. They get to be with their brothers and sisters. It's not my desire to split you off and part you off. It's never our desire to say goodbye. Even when we have to say goodbye and we know that it's a good thing, it still brings tears to our eyes because we don't want to say goodbye to people we love. And these people have been in fellowship for seven years. So nobody wants to say goodbye in these situations. It's kind of a sad chapter because they're saying farewell. So verse 8 doesn't include land as any of the things that they're taking, right? They get all the stuff, the loot from the, they get the blessings of what's happened so far, and they get to take those blessings with them. So when a new group parts from a church, they're going to take all the blessings and nourishment that they've gotten from that original church with them. And that's a good thing. They go off on fire for the Lord, hopefully, because they're coming out of a healthy church environment. So we see in this sense that from the body, we don't necessarily mourn this parting the same way the world mourns. We don't get into fights about this parting. We just say, God bless you. So that's true, like we've had even in our fellowship, when people say, you know, I'm going to move away or I'm going to go to this other church. The only thing that's left to say for Joshua, for a pastor, is to say, okay, well, God bless you. We want everything good for you. So may you find rest at this new place that you're going to be at. And we hope the best for people. We assume the best for people. And that maybe God has, he wants to move his people around the body of Christ. So next week, like, you all have permission to leave this fellowship whenever you want to. There's liberty in Christ. And so we're going to be about half the size we were last week because I'm basically giving you permission to go. And you all have permission to go. What's beautiful about a body of believers is you find a bunch of other geeks that want to study the Bible together, and there's immediate connection there. Like, oh, you look around the room and you say, I'm filled with a room of people that love the Lord in the same kind of way I do. And that should bring natural fellowship. And it's amazing. So why would you ever want to leave that? Either God's calling you to leave or you're leaving in the flesh. One of the two is happening. We're going to assume the best. So Joshua admonishes in verse 5. He blesses in verse 6. He sets them up for success, giving them resources and equipment and everything they'd need to go be successful and, and, and sends them on their way. And then we get to verse 9. So the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh. 
so the first part of verse 9, we see the first language split. In the first few verses, verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, um, they were brethren. They were among the brethren. But now you've got Reuben, Gad, Heftreb, and Manasseh. By the way, that's a huge title they're going to use through the whole chapter. And I'm just going to have to, I think I read that like almost 10, 20 times here in this chapter because they don't come up with a shorter name for this new kingdom. It's a big, long title. Um, but the children of Israel are now, they're departing from the children of Israel in verse 9. They're leaving that group. They're not part of the group anymore. And that language is going to get more and more distinct as we go through the chapter, which is in the land of Canaan, the good place, to go to the country of Gilead, the place that God did not assign, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses, they're taken off. So this is a, a heartfelt farewell. Uh, notice that um, Joshua is not part of this verse. He's not part of the story. And in fact, for a large part of the rest of the chapter, Joshua's not involved anymore. In the same way, Jesus left the church to deal with the church issues on their on their own. And he, he you know, Peter's going to be the rock of that church. He's going to be kind of the first Joshua of the church. But the idea is they're supposed to spread the gospel all over the place. So as Joshua commends these people in the first part of the chapter, he's oddly absent from the second part of the chapter. And he's he, the people of God, the children of Israel, which take press, which kind of come forward here in verse nine, the children of Israel become the actors in the rest of the chapter. They have to deal with their own problems because this does become a problem. So it says to the land of their possession, which they had obtained again, we see this. So if the goal is the land, then this verse is kind of odd. But in the Hebrew, that verse is instead of to the land of their possession, which they had obtained, in the Hebrew, it's just three words, Erez, Ahuza, Ahaz. And the Ahuza, Ahaz is both the root word for possess, uh, and Erez is the word for land. So land, possession, possessed. A, maybe a better translation of this verse isn't to the land of their possession which they possessed, but would be to land, possession that possesses them. They're going off to the thing that's possessed them. Or another way to translate this might be the land that they were possessed with. And then you have a double emphatic on that. So we have a tough translation because part of what's going on here and part of what gets put into this chapter is they're going off to the land that possessed them. This is what happens in the flesh when people leave the body. Part of what makes people leave the body is they want something more in the flesh. They're not seeking after the promises of God, which is rest. They're seeking after something bigger, more elaborate, more fantastic. Um, there's a hole in their heart that's not getting filled in the, in the kingdom of God. And it's because they're not seeking God first to fill that hole. You know, he gives, he gives water that when you drink of it, you thirst no more. So if you're still thirsty and you're with a healthy body of church where they're teaching the word of God, there's a problem. If you're still thirsty and you're in a church where they're not teaching the word of God, they give you like a single verse sermon every Sunday, then yes, you're going to be thirsty. You will be discontent because you're not going to a real church. You're going to something that's kind of fake church because they're not clinging to the word of God and giving it priority during the time of teaching on Sunday mornings or Sunday evenings in our case. Right, So they're going off to this other place that is possessing them because they're still thirsty. They still want something. So that we have this kind of, according to the word of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. Again, this is Joshua in his old age 
slipping things into the, the chapter, into the verses here, which give us a clue what he thought. So when he sends them off, right, and they're getting they're going off according to the word of the Lord by the hand of Moses, um, the narrator or the writer Joshua is saying something that in this case, you have to know what the hand of Moses was in order to know what he's saying. Because when you read it at face value, it sounds like a really good thing, right? But when, when Jacob laid his hand on the tribes and he blessed them, there was something that went with, with that. The blessing had intent or meaning to it. So if we go back to Genesis 49, Jacob, by the hand of Jacob, the blessing for Reuben was that he was unstable as water because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it and you went up to my couch. Genesis 49, 3 through 4. So by the hand of Jacob, this is a tribe that's going to sleep in his father's home and defile it and then go off and leave. A lot like a tribe of people that has a heart for another place and has lived amongst the people of God for seven years. You're basically defiling the place because you don't want to be here. You're here out of obligation or duty. So when J when Joshua releases them from that duty, they're gone the next day. So they're only there because they feel like they had to be there or the bad things would happen to them. You know, if the only reason you're in church is because you have to be in church, let me tell you right now, you have liberty in Christ. You don't need to be in church. It's God's will for you to be in weekly fellowship with other believers. It's been his will since the book of Leviticus. It's where you will find rest and life. But if you're not finding rest, you either need to get to a different church and it's a good thing for you to take off or you need, or you need to put your heart on the Lord where you can actually appreciate the abundance of the blessings of the Spirit. And in Galatians 5.22, we're told what those blessings are, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against, 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 against such thing there is no law. Gen, uh, Galatians 5.22 and 23. None of those things are flashy. None of those things are amazing. None of those things are an Indiana Jones-like adventure in quest for something. None of those things, the fruits of the Spirit, are not planting a megachurch. The fruits of the Spirit are not standing in front of crowds of un unbelievers and convincing them to become believers. The fruits of the Spirit are very quiet. Very Well, peace is actually one of them. They are the things of rest. If you're in a fellowship where people are kind to one another, even though we're goofy people, that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Because in the flesh, all we, all we do is get irritated with each other. In the flesh, we actually don't like other people a lot of times. So when the Holy Spirit is just bringing kindness amongst the body, we need to appreciate that. And we need to say, oh, this is the best thing God has for us. Or you need to go off on your Indiana Jones adventure, have some faces melt, and then realize that the, the real, the best for humanity is the fruits of the Spirit. It's not that other thing that our flesh desires after. It's not the bigger, better, next best, next fancy thing. That the fruits of the Spirit are simple. And they can happen amongst a very small group of believers. And they can happen in a huge megachurch. There are big, large, healthy churches. But the fruits of the Spirit have to be there. If you're in a body and there just isn't a joy to go every week, and you're like, man, I just can't wait, I miss it, then you're not experiencing the fruits of the Spirit in that body. 
So the you in this sentence back in, in, in our piece is not God. God's not the target of this you that's being used here. The you is the two and a half tribes. It said, and that you shall give them the land. Moses himself, so for saying by the hand of Moses, here's another spot we need to look. Numbers 32, 29, it says, and Moses said to them, if the children of Gad, and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, coming west over the Jordan, every man armed for battle before the Lord, you fight some battles and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land as Gilead as possession. But look at the you here. That is not Moses saying God's going to give you the land as possession. The you in that sentence is actually the two and a half tribes. If the children of Gad and Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, the children of Israel, every man armed for battle before the Lord and the land is subdued, then you, the children of Israel, shall then, then before you, then you shall give them the land as a possession. They're actually giving themselves the land, right? So you would be the people, not God. And Joshua didn't draw their lot because this isn't their inheritance. That is how humans are. It's how humans have been since the the since Genesis. Adam and Eve have the garden. They have love, joy, peace, patience. They're walking and talking with God. That's good. They're faithful to it. There's there's gentleness. There's self-control. There's no law because they don't need it because they have rest with God. Is that good enough for humanity? Nope. They fall right into the temptation of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Satan easily says there's more. You can have more than what you have. And the great sin of humanity is desiring more than the peace and the patience and the self-control and the love of God. Right? We think there has to be more and we always want it. In the flesh, not in the spirit. So the real fruit of God's inheritance looks foolish to the world. Those things are too simple. They're too easy. There's got to be more than that. That's actually the world talking. That's Satan talking. Because there isn't more than that. Go ahead. Go for it. Rise through the corporate ranks and see if you find more love, more patience, more kindness, more self-control. Right? Become famous and see if you find more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. Get rich and see if you find uh, more joy in that richness and more kindness. And if you can build more relationships with people when you're rich. You know, take anything the world has to pursue after. Get more degrees and see if the higher you get through the academic chain or, or, or whatever pursuit you have, see if pursuing that with everything you have actually gets you more of these things or less. And most people that have gotten there, and I'll testify to it, you find less of the fruit of the Spirit, not more. But that's humanity, right? That's what we want. So this is a tough situation. And Joshua's packing them up. He's blessing them. He's sending them with all they have. And then he slides in this, by the word, by the word of the Lord, by the hand of Moses. You know what? The hand of Moses never gave you this land. By the hand of Moses, if we go back and read it, you gave yourselves this land. So Joshua just kind of gives them the benefit of the doubt. He's really graceful about it. Then verse 10. And when they, this is the two and a half tribes, came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan. Dash, dash. A great, impressive altar. Ah. <laughs> this is what people do when they leave the body. When you're leaving the fruits of the spirit and a healthy church and the blessings of the body, the very first instinct is to do something bigger and better. 
right? If you're in the flesh, the point of leaving is to do something bigger than better. I think if you're in the Holy Spirit, you're actually expecting much, much less because you're not going into a health. You're trying to build a healthy fellowship. So you know you're going to have less fellowship. You know you're going to have less friends. You know you're going to have less joy and patience. You're going to be dealing with rough-cut new believers. You know you're going to have less uh, less of the fruits of the Spirit in that body when you start out. But that's in, in the Spirit. With a discerning, rational mind, you know that's coming. In the flesh, you leave because you want something better than what you have. So if you're in a church and you're discontent, ask yourself, are they breaking the law? Are they kind? Are they loving? Are they peaceful? Are they patient? Are they doing what Joshua admonished and said, sticking to the word of God? Like if all those things are in place and you don't, you don't hear any bad teaching, like everything's sticking to the word of God and they're actually teaching it, right? They're not doing just feel-good sermons every Sunday. They're, they're teaching through and covering the complete and whole word of God. You have no reason to leave other than the flesh. And the flesh says it's got to be bigger, it's got to be better. And you know what? There's always bigger and better out there. But in this case, there wasn't, so they built it. <laughs> and they built a great and impressive altar. It's bigger and better. So now the children of Israel uh, heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the ch- ch- children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half tribe of Manasseh, have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region of the Jordan, on the children of Israel's side. Notice the division that's coming. Now there's a side, right? At first it was just among brethren. Not the case anymore. They've left the body. They've left the fellowship. They've made a decision. And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel, notice Joshua's not included, gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now we're going to fight. So when I first was studying this, how did we get to fighting so quickly? My goodness, they were just sending them off with stuff and resources, and now they're ready to throw down with them? Like, that's a huge question. How do you go from a loving fellowship to ready to do combat so quick? And the answer is, this wasn't quick at all. From the very first passage, Joshua recognized they weren't at rest with their brethren. They were, they were coming to church, but they weren't part of the church. They didn't build friendships. They weren't ministering. They weren't looking to see how they could help. They were there out of obligation and duty. And the second Joshua released them from that duty, they were gone. The war didn't come out of nowhere. The war is there because they've done some things that are against the law. So Joshua admonished them, keep the word of God, keep the through Moses, hold to it and cling to it and don't depart from it. Now, if they're going to keep the word of God, it means that once a year they're coming back to the tabernacle for the festival. And they're, they're coming back, and if they would do that, and they came back every year to be part of the festivals, they're still part of the family. It's just a bigger geographical territory. Because this isn't about land. It's about the spiritual hearts of the people. The altar, notice, it says on the frontier, on the side. The altar is on Israel's side, meaning that the two and a half tribes aren't part of Israel anymore. They've left. The thing that kicks me about this is that they're doing it, and they make a point of it in verse 11 on the children of Israel's side. They can't use their own land for this thing. They have to leech off the children of Israel and their territory. And this happens a lot of times when people leave the church in the flesh. They can't just leave the church in the flesh on their own because it's not the Spirit telling them to go off and be missionaries. They have to gather as big a group as they can and steal territory from the existing church, the healthy church. And they're going to go after the people that are also discontent, the church of the discontent. 
But notice that they have to steal from the children of Israel in order to start what they're going to do. They can't just go off and do it on their own because, frankly, they don't have the blessing of God. So in verse 10, they build a great and impressive altar. Why would they do this? They don't need an altar. So we're going to get their reasons down below. But before we hear those, what think in our head, like, why would someone need to leave and go build something great and impressive? To build something impressive implies you're trying to impress someone. Are they trying to impress God? We're going to find out no. Are they trying to impress themselves? No. Are they trying to impress the people in the healthy body of Christ? Yeah. They're doing this so that the children of Israel can see it. Why do they need to do that? If they're in the Holy Spirit and I leave a body, I don't really care if that old body knows what I'm doing. or I'm doing what God told me to do. I'm following the Lord. So I don't need to impress the people that are behind me on that. I'm going forward in the way that I should go. But the goal isn't to impress people. But in the flesh, that is the goal, kind of. I want to go show all these people how awesome we can be without them, right? And not in fellowship. And that's kind of a self-righteousness. It's a self-importance. It's this idea that you can do these things. And we should know something about this altar. It is impressive. It's huge. And we know that because in the 1940s, the British found this massive altar exactly where the Bible tells us it would be. It's huge. It's well-built. It's solid. It sticks around for thousands of years. In 2004, Ely Assess, archaeologist, agreed and made a comment about its dimensions. Notice this. And this is the archaeologist speaking. Quote, it was not meant for sacrificial use, but was, in fact, meant to attract the attention of other tribes and provoke a reaction. What about it would provoke a reaction? She goes on to say that the dimensions of the altar are not the dimensions of altars that have been described in the Bible before. They're doing something different. They have to build something that's that's not what God commanded because they want to do something bigger and better. So the intent of this altar, based on modern-day archaeologists, was to impress or have an impact on the children of Israel when they looked on it. So they would come up to the new border, the new boundary. Notice there aren't boundaries between Benjamin and Judah, and there aren't boundaries between Asher and and, and uh, Issachar. There's boundaries now, though, between this group and that group. They're doing their own thing, and they have to do it bigger and better, and they have to do it different, right? Because if they do it different, they might fill their hearts, you know? So it's a fake altar, even by modern archaeology. It's a fake altar. It's not uh, what people would use to do worship. And that's exactly what they say here. So it's the shadow of the real thing. They build this massive, enormous thing that's not even real. And that's largely in the flesh what happens when people leave the body and they are in the flesh. They're building things that just aren't real. And they're building things that are a shadow of the real thing. So it looks like church. It acts like church. It is an impressive version of church. And when you walk up the the door, it is built to impress you. But when you get inside, there aren't the fruits of the Spirit. And they're not teaching the Word of God. And we this is what scares me right now. The reason we're doing this Bible study is because my family could not find a place where they would just go through the Bible chapter by chapter. So we started doing this before we even moved to Minnesota and said, we're going to at least teach our own kids what the Word of God says because they're not getting it at church on Sunday. So we have an American church right now that isn't teaching the complete and whole Word of God. There are very few denominations left that are still doing that. That's 
a terrifying situation because if it's a fake church, it will never have the power of the real church. They might get lots of people attending and it might be very great and impressive, but it's a shadow of the real thing. It's not real. And for non-believers, it's extremely easy to dismiss the power of God when what represents God is fake. Because all they have to do is speak the truth and say, that's fake. And believers have no defense against it because it isn't real. But when God is cut loose, he doesn't need to defend himself because it's the real deal. God builds strong and courageous men and women that have no fear. I'm looking around for churches that are filled with those people because they're immersed and clinging to the word of God as Joshua commended them to do. So the very first thing they do after they've been commended to follow the word of God is they defy the word of God. Uh, let me point that out. Uh, first, they do it on Israel's side. Uh, they are supposed to ask permission to use someone else's land. Exodus 22.5 establishes this in a much smaller situation. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. If my animal cuts loose and goes into your yard and even eats a bite of your grass, I'm supposed to take the best of my grass and replace it or eats raspberries off your bush. I'm supposed to give you the best of my raspberries. The idea of property rights is well established in the word of God. So when they build this altar and they make a point of it in verse 11, on the children of Israel's side, they're breaking the law. They're blatantly breaking the law. And, and this is something that they, when they didn't ask permission, they're, they're then presuming. So again, in the flesh, when people leave the church, they presume things. They presume things that aren't in the word of God. Like they presume they're ordained to do it. They presume that God has commanded them to do it. But they're in the flesh when they say that. They're not in the word of God because they're not practicing the word of God. They don't know the word of God. They haven't even read the whole thing, right? So they're off doing these things and they're building great impressive offers. They're presuming they're using other people's land. And then you think, but is that worth going to war over? Well, first, it's a way of moving boundary stones, right? They're, they're claiming territory when they build that altar. But here's another thing. And I think this is why they're ready to go to war. It is clear in Deuteronomy 12, and I'm going to start, I'm going to be in verse 13. It is clear that there is one place for the nation to give burnt offerings. It's ordained by God. And right now it's at the tabernacle. And, and it is super clear in Deuteronomy 12. Here's what it says, verse 13. Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see. Don't just offer burnt offerings wherever but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I command you. God is going to pick a singular place. Right now it's the tabernacle and later it's going to be Jerusalem in one of your tribes. Not every tribe doesn't get their own altar. There's one place where this is going to happen and it's going to be the real place and it's a command. This you, There you shall do all that I command you. This is where you're going to follow through with God's law. So there's a consequence to this. You don't get to just make it up. You don't make up your own worship and religion. Uh, the sons of Aaron, uh, um, I forget their names, uh, start bringing weird smoke into the, into the worship and God strikes them dead on the spot, right? Uh, Achan grabs his own loot when they conquer Jericho and the entire nation of Israel is going to suffer for that because one man sinned. Right? At Peor, they're having sex with harlots from the Moabites, 
and they're doing it blatantly in front of the tabernacle and and god brings a plague or a disease on the whole nation because of the sins of just a few and by the way the next character to show up here is going to be phineas he's the guy that stopped it by putting a spear through the guy that was having sex in front of the tabernacle there will be none of that says phineas there's a zeal for the lord amongst the children of israel they're excited because and frankly the two and a half tribes should be excited too. They just got done seeing God conquer a nation without their help, right? They got to be there to watch it, but essentially God did everything. God won every battle and they've been a part of all that. So they've seen the wonders of God, but it's not good enough for them. So the children of Israel hear of it. Um, it notice that it isn't the rest of Israel, the brethren of Israel, uh, their, their brothers and sisters heard it. We're now at where the language is us and them. There, there's a complete split between the two groups of people. And it says to go to war against them. Uh, so this is the how to handle conflict situation because they've broken the law in property rights. They've broken the law in building another altar. And then in Leviticus 17, uh, there is instruction for when people do these kinds of things. Leviticus 17, verse 8 you shall say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of strangers who dwell among you, namely the two and a half tribes, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle a meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. The law says these people are now separate. And if they brought sacrifice, they are defying God's law, they're enemies of God, and they did it in the land of Canaan, and that means that they should be they should be destroyed. They should be spread out or, or driven out of this land completely. So the automatic reaction of the children of Israel is because A, they know the word of God. They know what it says. They know that this is a breach in the rules. They know that there should be no false worship. <clears throat> Don't call yourself Hebrews if you're going to do false worship and you're not going to practice the way God said, because we've had enough of the plagues and, and the, the loss of battles, and we don't want God to lift his hand from our nation. We'd like to keep it firmly in place, thank you. So they show a deep concern for the word of God, for God's holiness, and this is at least worth a conversation. They are told that they are supposed to go and reason with them and find out what's going on and what's happening here. So, verse 13, then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Israel, Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and into the land of Gilead, and with them ten rulers, one ruler for each of the chief houses of every tribe of Israel, and each one with the, was the head of the house of his father among the division of Israel. So after Joshua has left the scene, there are ten tribal leaders, and the high priest, which is Phinehas, that makes eleven people. After Jesus leaves the church and, and ascends and transfigures to heaven, they are left with 11 disciples because one of them has betrayed the fellowship. So in this situation, frankly, I don't, I don't know that the writer would have ever thought of that. <laughs> but the mirroring to the New Testament is perfect. And, and again, God's word, God's inspired word is perfect in every regard. So again, if we're looking at this as a reflection or a precursor or, or typology of the church, uh, we see that it's, it's perfect in even the numbers and in the counts. So we have 11 people that have come as a delegation. Uh, they don't send their kids. They don't send the young and rowdy warriors 
off to have this meeting or it would turn out like a Braveheart situation where they just offend and we have war. Nope, they send the veterans, they send the elders. The goal is not war. So once again, we do not have an Israel that is bloodthirsty. We have an Israel that's actually trying to seek peace before they go to war, doing everything they can. And they're sending out people that have been exercised that can discern both good and evil, those who use reason, Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. The goal of discernment is to not have battle, and that's why you send out a priest instead of a general. Verse 15, then they came to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, I got to keep saying this long title, to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them. They didn't fight with them, they spoke with them. And thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. We come representing the entire congregation of the Lord. Notice the shift from children of Israel to congregation of the Lord. That there's a, The grouping or gathering of us are, have a concern about what you're doing over here. What treachery is this? Treachery is when someone in fellowship breaks fellowship to the harm of the fellowship. You can break fellowship and just abandon, but to be treacherous is to break fellowship and take something with you when you do it. So by building this altar, they are breaching the law in multiple ways. They're doing it on land that isn't theirs, and they're presuming they can do it. They never asked for permission. They never worked in concert. There's no conversation because they're cowards. And when you know you're doing something wrong, you don't ask permission to do it. That's why they didn't go to Joshua and say, hey, we should do a memorial over here. Now they don't do that, and they don't build a memorial. They build, by the word that's, that's used here, they build an altar. And they do that in defiance of God's word, um, no matter what excuses they're going to make. There's no person that knows God's word that would think building an altar is a good idea. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. What treachery is this that you've committed against the Lord God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord? Because they're defining it, they're discerning it correctly. What they've done is turning away from following the Lord. They're doing something that they're following themselves in that you've built for yourselves a big, huge, dorky-looking altar that you might rebel this day against the Lord. Is the iniquity of Peor not enough for us from which we're not cleansed to this day, although there was a plague in the whole congregation of the Lord, but that you might turn away this day from the following the Lord? And it shall be, if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. If you think you're still part of us in any way, and you turn away from the Lord, we all suffer for this, right? That's what they're saying. So I think the children of Israel aren't wanting this division, right? They, they're, you know, they're still seeing this as, look, if you're going to still be part of what we're doing here, but you're going to be over in Bashan, you can't be doing this too. It doesn't, go, it doesn't work that way. You can't be part of our church and be part of your own church, right? Either we're all unified in one or we're not. So tell us this day what you will be. Who do you follow? God or yourselves? But they notice here the language that they use. Uh, you know, it's not against Israel that this sin is made. It's against the God of Israel, verse 16, right? You're not just, when you sin, you don't just sin in private. Your sin affects the congregation. And we, we need to think that way too. If we think we have some private sin, we're fooling ourselves. There's no private sin. God sees it and it affects the growth and the fruits of the spirit amongst the whole fellowship that you call yourself a part of. So if you're going to call yourself part of a fellowship, don't bring sin and corruption into it and do things your own way. Be part of the fellowship, sticking and adhering to the word of God, 
obeying Joshua and what he says, the first part of the chapter, and being faithful to your brothers and sisters in the faith, ministering to one another. It's really simple, but humans muck it up all the time. And we've all seen this. We all know people like this. It is a common temptation in the church. It is not just a typology in the Old Testament. This is the real deal. It happens all the time, right? So, and, and notice the language here too in verse 16, in that you have built for yourselves an altar. They didn't build this for the Lord. They didn't build it for the children of Israel. Nobody asked them to do this or make this, right? They planned a bingo night all on their own, but the pastor never asked them to plan a bingo night. The congregation didn't decide to have a bingo night. The elders didn't say we need a bingo night. You're just building a bingo night because you want a bingo night and you like to gamble. But that has nothing to do with what we're doing as a body. So you find people that come in with their own agenda, their own ideas, and they do it for themselves. They're not doing it for other people. If you want to be part of the congregation of the Lord, it's really simple. Take your own will, put it on an altar, and burn it up. Your will is what's going to take you away from the congregation. It's not what's going to make the... So people come to church and like, I can't make any friends. Well, who are you serving? Who are you ministering to? What existing ministry have you found a way to help with? Or do you just come in with your own ideas and all the stuff you want to do all the time? Because that congregation is operating fine without your big, great, impressive altar. You don't need to build that altar. So in building it, in doing it, they got to deal with it. What are you doing here? This is kind of treachery. You're doing your own thing. You're building your own stuff. And you're not really doing it in the body. So you want to plan your own thing. Why are you doing it in our territory, right? Well, I just wanted to plan a Tuesday night Bible study, and I just started up, and I went asking around, seeing who would come. But what they're really trying to do is start their own church, plucking off the vine or the vineyard of the existing church. If you want to start your own Bible study, awesome. Come to church and be faithful. Minister to one another. See what, what needs to happen. And when there's a need for another Bible study, work with the pastor in the church to start up that Bible study. And actually talk to Joshua and, hey, Joshua, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? And Joshua can respond to that and pray about it and see if there's an anointing or blessing and you can work with the leadership of the church. But people don't do that. They do their own thing all the time. They build their own altars and they think they're so great and they're so impressive. And sometimes they actually are, but they're not of God. The reference to Peor here goes back to Numbers 25. You can go back and read that if you want to. Um Essentially, the, the sin of Peor, you know, was all these men having adulterous sex with the Moabitist women. Phineas brought an end to it with a spear uh, and, and, and did that. But the point being, like, everybody suffered because of the sins of these people. And they don't want that to happen. The, the idea that the disease is still with us, that's an interesting point here, too. Although there was a plague in, in, uh, a plague in the whole congregation of the Lord, and it's still with us. We're not cleansed this day. In other words, disease is an infection on a group of people that at times, at least in the Old Testament here, this is an example of we're still suffering from the sin of what happened before. So sometimes a sin can be released because God has lifted his hand from a people and that's the state that the enemy wants us in. So when God ceases his protection, disease comes in and it comes in quickly. And then the, the consequences of that last a long time. But that's not God's will for his people. God's will for his people is that they are holy and that he can protect them from things like that. So they have courage to confront other believers. I think from the side of the children of Israel, this takes a lot of courage to call people out on their garbage. 
uh, I've seen more often than not, people just don't call people out. People don't admonish. People don't step up willing to have this conversation. It takes a lot of courage. So when God tells Joshua to be strong and courageous, the children of Israel are now exhibiting those traits because of the leadership of Joshua. They're acting like Joshua, Yehovah, and they're being like him in doing this. Hey, what are you doing over here? And why are you doing this? And why does it need to be in our territory? Why, why didn't you just go off and do your own thing like Joshua commended you to do? Uh, it goes on, verse 19. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, in other words, what treachery is this? And then nevertheless, despite your treachery, let me say something good. Verse 19, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Now land is mentioned. Take possession among us. That's not italic. Take your claim. Take your inheritance with us. Do not rebel against the Lord, nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar, the altar of the Lord our God. I love this verse. This is great. Think of what they're offering here, right? Years ago, you pined over this land that possessed, now it possessed you because your heart's after whatever possesses you, right? You know what people worship when you look at their pocketbook, their calendar, and, 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 and in those things, you can see their heart, right? They're pining after it. They make time for it. They make money for it. They make resources for it. The land of Bashan possessed these people for years. But you know what? You can walk away from that. You can leave that thing that possesses you and let God possess you. And you can come into the possession God's granted you. You can come into those blessings. By making this offering, offer in verse 19, they're actually offering all of Canaan has been split up and, and assigned. When they make this offer, they're offering their own cities. Just like Simeon is staying amongst Judah, these two and a half tribes would come and claim cities in their area. And remember, it's not just Phineas the priest. It's also representatives of all 10 tribes. So together as a congregation, they're making an offer to give up their own land, their own cities, and make room for them, people. You know why? Because it wasn't their land to start with. It's a gift from God. And God's gifts are overflowing. They never end. If I take a gift from God, I don't have to worry about running out of things, right? There's an abundance to God's wealth and inheritance. So they make an offer because they know that God will bless them if they do this. So if your possession is unclean, look, if Bashan's unclean, and you know darn well that it's unclean because you're building great impressive altars. You're doing nonsense stuff. Stop it. Come back into the fold. It says where God's tabernacle stands. Like there's an existing tabernacle with an altar in front of it. You can come be there instead of being here. This shortcut you're making, it's not for God. This is a tough chapter because it's kind of depressing because they're doing these things. But don't be depressed. Be impressed by what the children of God do in these situations. We all have to deal with family, cousins, brethren that go off and do their own thing and follow their own flesh. But be instructed and coached by what God says in his word to do to react to those people. Look, when you're done doing your own thing, come back into the fold. You're always welcome back. And that's the difference. When people hate in the flesh, there's no returning for that. They'll hate you till the day they die. You do one wrong thing, you cross them, you're done forever, right? That's the world, that's the flesh. In the kingdom, we're not like that. You can cross us and we can forgive. 
And we can just choose to say you're forgiven. So when somebody comes back and repents, so the right answer to this this admonishment from the children of Israel, the right answer for the two and a half tribes is to say, oh man, we're so sorry. You're totally right. We shouldn't have built this thing. Tell you what, we're going to take it down. We will stone by stone not leave one stone on top of the other. We will erase this thing from history. They don't. The, the, the impressive altar stays in place. So everything we're about to hear from them sounds good, but you ever have those things where people say what they want you, what they think you want them to hear just so that you leave them alone? And at the end of the day, as believers, like we can just say, okay, we'll leave you alone. You've said everything we needed to hear here. But man, when you're done with this nonsense, come back into the fold, come back home. In fact, later on, one of the kings, I think Hezekiah, actually offers them to come back and some of the families of these two and a half tribes actually do return to the promised land and they're given a home in Canaan where God wanted them to be. And that's why we still have Reubenites and Gadites is because some of those families return to Israel and live there. Amen for that. I got a good friend who's a Rubenstein and I'm really glad that Rubenstein is with us because he's awesome. And, and, and his forefathers and mothers decided to come back and live in the Holy Land. The other ones got carried away by Assyria, but that's we'll, t- we'll get to that at the end. So nevertheless, if the land's unclean, come back over to, to Canaan where the tabernacle is and be among us. Remember that was at the very beginning of this chapter. Joshua says that, there's, that's, that your brethren uh, are at rest and you're not. The goal here is to improve on the initial state. Come be at rest with, with us, among us, right? So that what's between us is God. So um, don't rebel against the Lord by building this altar, by building this stupid altar that's not what God wants. So they do, do all of these things um, and they're ready to go. So they have an obligation. If this altar is for false worship, Deuteronomy 17, verse 12 says, if you hear someone in one of your cities say, let's go serve other gods, which you've not known, then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently. And if if it's indeed true and certain that such an abomination was committed among you, they're supposed to get get rid of them. This is a death penalty kind of situation. That's why they're armed for war. But they're doing what Deuteronomy 13 says to do. They're inquiring, they're searching it out, and they're asking diligently. So they have laid out their case. Here's the problem I have with you. You've built this fake altar. And they're trying and they're looking for a response. Like, what's your problem here? And what are you doing? And and then they offer a solution. Come on back and be with us and, and get rid of this false stuff. So they're actually asking diligently. They're putting some intent into this and they're giving these people a way out. You know, here's what you need to do to fix this. Apologize. Take it down. Fix it. Uh, Verse 20, I should have read this with the other part. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit a trespass in the accursed thing, and wrath fell on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Again, along with the sin of Peor, they're making a point here that God punishes the whole nation when there's sin in the nation. Sin is not private. It affects everyone you're in fellowship with. No sin is solo. I've already made that point. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Matthew 18, 15, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. The Lord will be among you if they if you hear each other. But if he doesn't hear, take with you one or two more 
that by the mouth of two or three witness, every word can be established. So in the New Testament, they say the same thing. When you got somebody who's going astray, you tell them, we think you're going astray. And if they don't listen to that, you bring other people, which we've already gotten to that step because the witness is clear. There's an altar that just got constructed. So they have 11 people saying, we need to hear your side of the story here. Like what's going on, which is diligent seeking and searching, but they're addressing the conflict very directly in conversation that takes courage. And they're willing to lay it out clearly. Like, here's our problem. We don't like that you built this altar here. Then the children of Reuben. So we get to verse 21. This is their response. The children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, answered and said to the heads of the division of Israel, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods, he knows. And let, and, and let Israel itself know, if it is in rebellion or if in treachery against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord or to offer it on the burnt offering or grain offerings, or if to offer peace offerings on it, then let the Lord himself require an account. But in fact, we have done it for fear, for a reason saying, in time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants, saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? Notice that in that particular passage, they use Lord Yahweh seven times, you know, it's perfect. Uh, in order to get to that seven, they use the Lord God of gods twice. <laughs> the Lord God of gods in the Hebrew is Jehovah El Elohim. That's all three uses of God's name so far in the Bible. So as we get through the Old Testament, they're, they're very specifically pointing out that we serve this God that you serve. Jehovah, this God, is God of all. Jehovah El Elohim. Uh, Elohim is a plural noun. It's always used with singular verbs, implying a a, a trinity, a, a trinitarian God, a three-in-one God, Elohim. Um, and they appeal to God. They use a double emphatic appealing to God. When we're misunderstood, going to God is a good place to start. Like before God, here's if we have a good heart about what we're doing, we know we're doing it in the Holy Spirit. We're not really in the flesh. We're not in sin. Uh, and we're trying to do something, and a pastor or elder admonishes us, boy, the first thing we can do is apologize and say, you know what, before God Almighty, um, we this is where swearing on the Bible came from, right? If I'm guilty, let God punish me. If I'm not guilty, then let me go from this, because this, I, we're really, we just did this in innocence. Now, that doesn't excuse the action if it's wrong. So repentance from that action can also happen here, in which case I argue that if they were really repentant, they should take the altar down. Um, going twice implies emotion, not reason. So they've come to reason with them, to inquire diligently, and the response they get is an emotional response. Right? In the flesh, this is almost always the case. In fact, I've never seen it be otherwise. It's always an emotional case because the reason they're leaving is because they have some sort of issue that they're too gutless to actually point out. They're not going and inquiring diligently. They're not approaching Joshua and asking permission to build an altar. They're avoiding these conversations out of cowardice. So their response is emotional. Oh, no, 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 right? You repeat yourself when you're emotional. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You repeat yourself when you're emotional. Oh, Lord God Almighty, Lord God Almighty. They say it twice. Here's another thought. When you swear on God, when you call on God's name, 
and you bring him into the dialogue like that, how many times do you need to call on God's name? How many times do you need to use God's name? Does God respond when you call him once, or do you need to call him seven times, or five times, or two times? I would argue that in saying it twice, one of those two appeals to God is in vain. It's not needed. So in some ways, they just use the Lord's God, the Lord God's name in vain. They've said it twice because once wasn't good enough, right? So I'm telling you the truth. I'm really telling you the truth. Don't you always tell me the truth? Have you lied in the past? Why do you need to say you're telling me the truth if you always do, right? So when people are in the flesh or even in a lie or even getting caught in a lie, these things that we see in the Bible should instruct us on how to recognize that. We can see the same things because we can read it and see how it works. So if they're in rebellion or they're in treachery, they, got, they name it and they show understanding of the accusation, right? So they've actually heard what's been said because they name it and they say it. But in fact, if we've done it in fear for a reason, saying in time to come your descendants may speak to our descendants, they explain themselves. We see how you can see this might be treasonous or treacherous, but it's not because let's explain, we'll, we'll explain it to you how this is not a bad thing. Then they give an argument that's actually against the word of God, but in fact, we have done it for fear. Nowhere in the entire word of God, and it's a big book, nowhere does it say God tells people to act in any other fear other than fear of the Lord. So it's important when somebody says we did it for fear, that you define, are you doing it in fear of the Lord or you're doing it in fear of something else? But, this, but what they give is something else. In time to come, your descendants may speak to our descendants saying, what have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? Their fear is that other people will reject them in the future. They're blaming this on future children, by the way, which isn't rational at all. Again, when people are in the flesh or when they're in a lie, they don't talk rationally. Reason doesn't work with those people because they left reason a long time ago when they started following after themselves. It's not reasonable to follow after your own flesh. It is flawed. It's reasonable to follow after a perfect, good, holy, and true God. That's rational. So when you start thinking that you got a better plan than God, you've already left the world of reason and you've walked firmly into the world of absolute irrationality. So they become irrational. We're scared that our descendants and your descendants won't get along. That's our fear. So that fear made you build a giant altar on someone else's land against the word of God. So what I think is impressive here is the children of Israel don't argue with them. They don't. They're there to inquire and seek out if this is actually treachery against God or not. So they're listening. And that's an important thing in these conversations. Actually hear out what the other person has to say. And, and see if there's reason to have battle here. And sometimes there is. Sometimes there's reasons to say, you are against the will of God. We want nothing to do with you anymore. And that can be the answer. But what they're saying is what the children of Israel need to hear. They're seeing if the law of God has been broken or not. So listen to what they do here. Um, uh, you know, just on that fear thing, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. You know, at Romans 8, 15, God doesn't give us a spirit of bondage to fear. We're not bound by fear. And fear of other people should be something that slowly gets erased from how we operate as children of God. If we fear God, we don't fear people. 
So we're going to do the choices we make and the things we do if they're in line with the Word of God because we're clinging to the Word of God. We don't have to fear the repercussions of people, even to the point of martyrdom, because we're in the will of God. So one response could have been for the two and a half tribes to say, you know what, we're in the will of God here. We don't really answer to you. And we're doing what God's told us to do. And if that's the case, then God can judge us accordingly. Frankly, God does, does judge them. They, they do get erased off the earth. So this appeal to God to judge them might not have been the best idea in these verses. Um, and neither is blaming it on fear and, and future children that don't exist yet. Uh, all of these things are sound like nonsensical things too. Verse 25 says, For the Lord has made the Jordan a border. God didn't make borders. It, when it comes to the children of Israel, God defined a land that he had given them and, he, and there's land that he had not given them. The border gets created by them. So even the two and a half tribes now are saying that there's a border. There isn't a border between the tribes of Israel anywhere else but where they made one, right? That's a lot of times when there's the larger divisions in a denomination or church. People will ask the local pastor, well, what do you think about this split and this split? And the pastor can look around and just smile and say, oh, we don't have that split here. There's no divisions in this body of believers. So welcome to the body. Be blessed. Be part of it. And we, won't, we don't have to worry about splits that other people are having. But that's not the case in verse 25. The two and a half tribes, there's a boundary that they've created or defined there. A border between you and us. So now it's not brethren anymore. It's you and us now. You, children of Reuben Gad and children of Gad, uh, between Oh, I'm sorry. Between you and us, you children of Reuben and children of Gad, you have no part in the Lord. This is what they're fearing will be said in the future. Why would you fear that that would be said in the future? Like, again, if we're going to unpack this, the only reason you say that is because there's a conscience in you. There's a part of you that knows that you're walking away from the kingdom. You're separating. So this would be as though a church kind of took off and did this big nonsensical thing and the, the former pastor called them up and said, what are you doing over there? And they're like, well, we're doing this to impress you and because we know in the future you're not going to think that we're godly. And uh, Well, then why are you doing it? If you know it's not godly, why, do you, why would you do it? So again, but reason isn't going to work and, and gracefully they don't argue with them over these points, but you can pick apart almost everything they say. If you, ever, if you have a conversation with somebody who's in the flesh and they're leaving the fellowship, They'll say these things, and then afterwards you'll reflect on what they said, and you'll be like, wow, just not one word of that was true or biblical. They're just off the rails. And it's a really aggravating, frustrating thing. It makes this a hard chapter tonight because you think of these situations, and, you th and, and they say things, and you're like, none of that is biblical, any of it. But in the moment, like it's happening so fast and they're saying things, but they're just one after the other, they're cranking them out. So they're worried that the future children will say you have no part in the Lord because there's a part of them that knows that they don't have a part in the Lord anymore. So your descendants would make our descendants cease fearing the Lord, but they're not fearing the Lord. They're fearing those other descendants. So if the goal is to keep following the Lord, then do it. All they would have to do is make a not very long journey across the Jordan, build a bridge, and you'd make that journey across the Jordan to come to Tabernacle every year. And if you're coming to Tabernacle every year, you don't have to worry about people saying you're not part of the family because you're at the reunion every year. So if they faithfully continue to come to the place the Lord has defined, then they don't have to worry about ever being separated. But they don't intend to come every year. 
I think that's part of it. That's why they're building the altar. They're, they know that their children aren't going to be part of the God's kingdom because they won't be coming to the tabernacle or the future temple. So therefore we said, let us prepare to build ourselves an altar. They call it an altar. Not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, but they condition it. Um, so why would you build this big gaudy eyesore, this altar? It, well, it's not a real altar because it's not for burning or sacrifice. Remember when I read the passage? You're not supposed to build an altar wherever all willy-nilly for burning and sacrifice. What they're doing, they know the word of God very, very well. They're wordsmithing it, right? And, and so when you have this situation pop up, they know the word of God well enough to know it actually what the contention is here with them. They know that they're not supposed to build something that happens. So it says, whatever man of the house of Israel or strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle or meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off as among the people. So they're fearing they're going to get cut off from the people and they're fearing it because of the burnt offering and sacrifice. So their answer is, well, we're not doing burnt offering and sacrifices. We would never do that. We're just building an altar. And it's a fake altar, but it's not a it's not against the law if we're not doing burnt offerings on it. So they're taking the law and they're word splicing it. This is what the Pharisees did. Uh, and this is why Jesus had issue with them, is they took the word of God and made it a prison of fear for other people. Instead of making it a freeing thing to know that you're right with God because you follow the law. So the law becomes a curse, and it's a curse that points out people's sin. And in this situation, they're doing the same thing. They're using the law, and it's becoming a curse to them that only inspires fear of people instead of a fear of God. Verse 27, but that it might be a witness between you and us and our future and generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and our sacrifices and our peace offerings that your descendants may not say to our descendants in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. So there's no reason that they couldn't come and offer their sacrifices. Nobody said that they couldn't. Joshua didn't say they couldn't. The people of God just offered them a place amongst their people. Nobody's creating a border here but them. They're creating their own prison. Therefore, having these promises beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in fear of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 7.1. The goal is not to have fear of other people. It's to have a fear of the Lord. And we do that by sticking to the word of God and striving towards perfection, striving towards cleanliness. To just be pure is better than any sin that I can be tempted by. Let me, Lord, just be pure and to be holy in your eyes. And I can't do that on my own. I have to be following God, working with my fellowship, in fellowship with the congregation in order to be even beginning to do that. And in the end, I'm going to fail. But at least the pursuit of it puts my heart in the right place. I want to be holy. I want to be pure. What they're saying is that we're going to get cut off and they're not going to be a part of it. And that should be really convicting to them. Something's broken with their argument. Also notice how long their defense is. Like, if you're innocent, you don't need to be this defensive and explain yourself with all this nonsense because this large, elaborate explanation is part of what they were constructing when they were pining after their possession, right? It's part of why Joshua sent them packing. Therefore, verse 28, therefore we said that it will be when they say this to us in our generations in time to come that we may say, here's the replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made though not for burnt offerings or for sacrifices. They got to put that in there again. But it's a witness between you and us. It's not really that. It's this, right? 
Uh, when people start playing with words like that, watch out. They're in the flesh. Because God's orderly and reasonable and true and direct. God doesn't need this kind of wordsmithing, right? So far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day to build an altar for burnt offerings and grain offerings and sacrifices besides the altar of the Lord, which is before his tabernacle. We don't want, we're not doing that. Far be it from us. That thing you're accusing of us is not true. So at this point, okay, so you're not offering offerings on it. The archaeologists in 2004 agree this wasn't made for offerings. What is it for? So you're not doing anything that's in defiance of God's law. We're going to leave you alone. It, it, it's none of our business. Like if you want to do stupid stuff in the flesh, do it. Don't pretend that you're doing it for the Lord, even if you're not rebelling against the Lord. It's not the Lord's will. So this is a very similar situation to people going off and doing their own thing, like the sin of Achan, the sin of Peor, only that's clearly in defiance of God's law. So they end it. In this situation, it's not clearly in defiance of God's law. They've found a loophole. They can go, ah, ah, we got you. And that's what, so you look at it and go, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. It's not of God. It won't have a lot of fruit, but, you know, go ahead and do your thing. So they give a reason. The reason is it's a altar. It's not a memorial. And in verse 28, they actually say, behold, or look, look at it. It's a replica. The word replica in the Hebrew is tabnet, a pattern, a form, an image, something that is an idol or an, a, 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 to represent something else. So technically, they're not breaking Deuteronomy 4. They don't worship false idols, uh, Deuteronomy 4. It's not a false god. It's not an image of a man, a false man. And it's not a false animal or an image of an animal that you're going to worship. Those are the things that are listed in Deuteronomy 4. It's a false altar is what they say. And they use tabnet, the same Hebrew word that's used in Deuteronomy 4. Again, they know their Bible. And they're, you know, they've been to seminary or cemetery. And they've, they've, they've instructed themselves in how to really read what the Word of God says. And the Word of God leaves this loophole. It's not a loophole. It's stupid, right? God didn't put it in there because to build a fake altar makes no sense whatsoever. But this is the way I think the enemy and the flesh will work together to go into complete stupidity. We're going to build something that's super, super amazing, but we're not in defiance of God. They also don't say that they're for God in doing this. They're just saying they're not against God. So they got their loophole. Okay, it's a fake altar. There's nothing in the law that says you can't build fake altars. Um, and, and, and they do it. So with the people, the children of Israel, I think they're being really graceful here. They're, they're asking and inquiring. They get an answer that's like, okay, yeah, you're not breaking the law. And if that's the case, we don't got to go to war. So now when Phinehas, the priest and the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the division of Israel who are with them, heard the words of the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. All right, great, we don't have to fight you. <laughs> you're in the flesh, you're off the rails, but I don't, you go, you know, go kick it with your fake altar people and do what you got to do. Um, you didn't need to. Uh, you're operating out of fear. You're operating in the flesh, but we're not going to fight you either. So even in, in, our, in our fellowship, we've had people leave the fellowship out of fear and uh, out of some sense of obligation, out of uh, something that's not against the word of God. And, and, you know, you assume the best. You assume that maybe God's leading them in that direction. And, and 
hey, that please, you know, if, if you're doing it and you've got a reason to do it and it's not a reason of sin, you know, do what you need to do to feel safe. Do what you need to do to allay those fears that you have. And God bless you the best that he can. And, and our hearts should really, we should be pleased, verse 30. We should be pleased when we hear an answer that's not against the word of God. To be fearful is not directly a sin. It's in the flesh. It's not exactly of the Holy Spirit. But we don't, if you need to do that to feel safe, then do it. God bless you. And it pleases us that you're not in sin when you do it. So we admonish the same way Joshua did back in verse uh, uh, 4 and 5. Like, stick to the word of God. If you're not going to be with us in fellowship, then at least adhere to the words of God and stick to it and be in it every week and every day. Uh, be in the word and live that out. And if you can do that, then that pleases us. That makes us happy. Then Phineas, verse 31, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the children of Manasseh, this day we perceive that the Lord's among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you've delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. It's a very short answer. Notice huge explanation, very short, curt answer, right? One or two sentences here. It seems obvious to any civil person that they're in the world, but it's not a sin against God. It's just a sin against themselves. It's just dumb, right? It's not of trespass other than that they took Israel's land and they're willing to overlook that. So it's really not about the land, right? They didn't want God to be offended with a fake, fake worship. But when all they found was a fake altar, you know what? If you need to build your big super church, go build it. If you need to do a fancy light show and, you know, I knew one person was talking about how their, their lighting for their auditorium cost half a million dollars, half a million dollars. Think of the ministry around the world you could sponsor with a half a million dollars, but they needed fancy lights to do their light show. Well, there's nothing in the word of God that says you can't do a fancy light show. And frankly, if I don't want to be hypocritical and in 10 years, if, if we actually, if God blesses us and grows us into a bigger community, awesome, that'd be great. But we're going to get used lights from the people where their church folded up and died, and we're going to get used half-million-dollar lights for free in our auditorium because we don't need fancy lights. But if God wants to bless us with them, great. God doesn't need your great, impressive altar. He doesn't need the great, impressive building. He never asked for that. But it's also not against the law. It's not against God's will. It's not a sin against the Lord. It says in verse 31, we perceive that's not intuition. We can read that in, in modern America and see that as like almost a psychic perception thing. It's not that. It's the Hebrew word yada. It means to know something or to acquire knowledge with certainty. It, 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 it implies that you know something in stone, right? So there's this idea that they knew that this would happen. So the same word gets used with Noah. He knew that the waters receded before he actually saw them with his eyes. Genesis 8:11. Yada, the Hebrew word. He knew it. Couldn't see it, but he knew it. That's perception. The servant knows that Rebekah is to be Isaac's wife before he even meets, before Isaac and Rebekah even meet. Genesis 24:14. Yada, he knows it. It's a certainty, right? Now therefore I stand still that I might reason with you before the Lord of all righteousness, acts of the Lord which he did to you and to your fathers. 1 Samuel 12:7. We reason and we know things. So in God, in, in, in the spirit, we are given every tool we need in the word of God to know and discern what is right and what is not. So when they make a perception here, 
They perceive the Lord is among us. The Lord is still here. He hasn't left us because what you've done is technically not a sin. So they've perceived it. If they were a sin, if it was Peor or Achan, the examples we've had in this chapter, the Lord would not be among them and they would start to fail in all their doings. And the difference between the Lord among them and the Lord not among them, it seems to be a hard thing to discern. And equally today, if the Holy Spirit's with us, we see the fruits of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit's not with us, we don't see the fruits of the Spirit. But it's not like we lose an electrical charge and we can see the light go off, right? So when they go out to see if there's sin, they're doing it because they don't want the, the hand of the Lord to stop so that people suffer and die because of it. So they can see that the Lord is still among them because what's going on here is dumb, but it's not a sin. It's not treachery against the Lord. So your altar memorial, memorial altar, whatever you want to call it, it's not a sin, but it's also not of God, right? So you build these big, stupid, ornate things. God never asked you to do that. And as long as you're not doing it in representing another human or representing an animal or representing a fake God, then you're not really doing treachery against the Lord. You're just doing things that aren't necessary. So it's treachery against themselves. It's not fellowship. It's not against the law. You and the children of Israel are delivered, they're not responsible for it. <laughs> so I like the language here, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord, now you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. We now have total separation. There's you, and there's the children of Israel, not the same thing. So the language that's used here with Phineas is to completely separate them. You are a different people. So that's okay too. And when you have a division, sometimes if it's in the spirit, you don't have to have that division. I'm still on the phone with Pastor Mike from CCTC. I still talk to Pastor Mike Montgomery. All the Calvary Chapel pastors in the area, I look to them for wisdom and advice and help. And some of them I know as friends. Some of them I'm going to get to know as friends. But there isn't a division there because what we're doing is in the Holy Spirit. You can see it's in the Holy Spirit because all the fruit is here. And we have it among us. And if we had a group of people leave this Bible study and go start their own, but they're doing it their own way and they're not sticking to the word of God and they're not doing those things, they can do that because God may bless it. I don't know what they're doing. I'm not going to try to discern that, but there will be a you and us separation. We will not continue to have connection. We, will, I, I, we are not going to counsel you because you're not looking for counsel. You're doing it your own way. So the you and the children of Israel being separated is a good thing. They're happy about it. They can move on. They can overlook the, the boundary stone movement. Um, and reason dominates. Isaiah 1.8, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Uh, 1 Samuel 12.7, that I might reason before with you before the Lord. This reasoning that they just got done doing is before the Lord. You got one side that comes with an accusation. The other side gives a large elaborate excuse. They find a loophole in the law, but we don't need to go to battle over that. right? You do your thing, we'll do our thing. You, us. Verse 23, verse 32. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the rulers returned from the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the children uh, in the land of Gilead. Wait, returned from the children of Reuben and the children of Gad from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the children of Israel and brought back word to them. Notice the other half tribe of Manasseh is not in this verse. I don't know why. Um, maybe that's because some of Manasseh did choose to be in the Holy Land. So the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God, and they spoke no more 
of going to, against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and Gad dwelt. So we have this whole chapter, right? That starts with Joshua giving uh, a, a little praise. They get big in their britches and they say, okay, it's time to go. The first thing they do is break God's word. They come up with an excuse for how it's not breaking God's word. And they come home and go, all right, well, we can praise the Lord and we can still have peace because we know that God's not going to be cursing us because of their what they're doing. And we can draw this, they can draw a boundary that we agree to and say, okay, you're your thing and we're our thing. And we'll just both go on doing our thing and we'll see who God blesses. And God may bless both of us. So why get into it? So they don't go to battle. They don't have to go to war. Uh, in this situation, they don't have to do anything like they did with Peor or Achan. So this is one of those things where it takes a mature believer to understand that there's a balance here, right? With Achan and Peor, they had to react because it was treachery against God. And in this situation, they don't have to react. The difference is understanding the word of God and acting on it and doing what it says and using reason and discernment to come to those conclusions. When we make decisions as a body, we do it with perception. We do it with the knowledge of what God says in his word. And we know that what we're doing is in God's will. And if it's not in God's will, we can wait. It doesn't have to happen. So they blessed God. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's to kneel to God. They, they serve and worship God. They give thanks. Uh, they're separated, but they're not in conflict. That's worthy of thanks. And then at the end, we get a conclusion to the story. Verse 34, the children of Reuben and the children of Gad called the altar witness, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Uh, one thing to know here in the Hebrew is the word witness there was added. It should be in italics in your Bible. It's the word ed. <laughs> it means testimony or to testify to something. Uh, it stands like a permanent testifier that would exist in a courtroom. So this altar plus one person would make two witnesses in, in a courtroom. Uh, it is uh, not in the Hebrew, though. What's in quotes, the long name, that's actually the title. Uh, the title is the, for it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. That's the name of the altar. Um, they just shortened it in the, in the translation. Historically, great works usually celebrate people. The pyramids, the hanging gardens, or they celebrate gods, the temple of Zeus, the temple of Athena. Uh, God never, in his word of God, never asks for anything but the temple and, and builds it with resources that he largely provides. He doesn't ask for great works to be built all over the planet, just one. And he asks for us to stay faithful in that. That is our witness to one another. When we serve the Lord humbly, gracefully, sweetly, with peace, joy, kindness, self-control. That's our witness we give to God. Um, we don't need to be building these big altars. It's important to know in 2020 that God doesn't bless these people. It doesn't go that way. They think what they're doing is to stick to the plan of God, but because they're not faithful to it, they don't stick. It's like when you take a stick out of the fire. If you put sticks together and burn them, they create a beautiful warm fire, the, the Holy Spirit. Right? And you keep those sticks together because they generate warmth together. And it's beautiful and it's wonderful. But when you take one twig out of that fire, it can be raging with fire when you take it out. But if you set it down by itself, it will first, the fire will die, then the, the embers will stop glowing, and then it'll smolder and smoke a little bit, and then it'll die. And it takes time. It's hot when you first pull it out, you know, on fire for Christ. But separating yourself from the fellowship of believers never works. It never works. 
And it doesn't work in chapter 22 either. They, they pull themselves out of Israel on fire, desiring to honor the Lord, building a memorial slash altar that doesn't burn sacrifices and is not actually against the law, doing things their own way, going after the land that possesses them of the world and that they're possessed by it. And it doesn't result in faithfulness. It doesn't result in the fruits of the Spirit. Here's what it results in. First Chronicles 5.4, if we look at the genealogies, watch what happens to their names. The sons of Joel, this is a boring genealogy. The sons of Joel, Shemamiah, his son, Gog, his son, Shimei, his son, Micah, his son, Rei, his son, and Baal, his son. Both Gog and Baal are other gods that they're naming their kids after. They fall away. That's exactly what happens. They go after the gods of the people of the land of Bashan, which is, again, they did not do mass genocide. There's still people living there that remember the old religions. That way they can learn the old religions from those people and name their kids things like Gog and Magog. Why would you do that? If you keep going in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, in verses 25 through 26, it says, And they, the tribes of Reuben, uh, and they transgressed against God their fathers and went whoring after the gods of the people of the land and God destroyed whom God destroyed before them and the God of Israel remember they're not Israel anymore stirred up against the spirit of Pol king of Assyria and the spirit of Tilgath Pilneser king of Assyria and he carried them away even the Reubenites the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh and brought them unto Hala Harbor Hera and the river goes in unto this day. They are literally carried away by the Assyrians and transplanted to other parts of the world where they will go into obscurity and disappear from history. They die. Their whole tribe is gone. Before that happens, a few of their families are invited to come back into Israel. So there still are descendants of the Reubenites and the Gadites. They live in Israel because they returned and crossed the Jordan. We'll get to that story in a in a few books, um, but there are some that remain. Thus, we still have Reubenites and Gadites with us today. Thank God that we still have them with us today. Um, but the rest of the tribes, they disappear into obscurity. They're worthless. They go on the trash heap, uh, never to be remembered or thought of, and they don't glorify God, and they don't remember God. And their great impressive altar becomes an archaeological ruin of, of no real significance when things go dry, faithless, they become fruitless. It can look good. It can be great and impressive. But at the end of the day, it's not God. And it doesn't have the power of God, no matter how impressive it looks. So what was once a great super church has uh, a leader that falls, and now nobody's showing up to it, and they sell it off to a builder's square, and it becomes another business. right? That's what happens to these churches, because they aren't rooted in the word. And every generation has a great and impressive altar that will attract the people of God and deceive them. And at the end of days, that deception will be so powerful that the people of God will go off to the great impressive altar instead of being with the people, the simple, pure fruits of the Spirit. And that's happening today, and that's supposed to be happening in the end times. So that makes one think we could be pretty close to the end times. So let me say this to everybody in this room and everybody who might be listening. If you don't pine for the possession God has given you, the fruits of the Spirit, if you don't desire the gifts of the Spirit, if you don't want to be in fellowship on Sunday, in fact, need it and think, I can't wait to see my brothers and sisters. I miss them. If that's not in your heart, 
then whatever great and impressive altar you're attending on Sunday mornings, you got to question if you should still be there or if you should come back over the river and get find a place where the fruits of the Spirit are active. How do you define it? Go to Joshua's admonition. Study the Word of God. Obey and comply with Jesus. Minister to your brothers and sisters in the faith. You don't see those things in a church. Or Acts 2.42. They... They, they fellowshiped with the saints. They, they followed the apostles' doctrine. They prayed together and they broke bread together. It is not hard from the Bible to see what defines a church and, and how you identify it spiritually. So if you're pining for things of the world and you can't wait for that next entertainment to come at you and that's what you live for, spend your money on and spend your time on, you need to rethink it all and repent the right answer for these people would be to abandon the great oppressive altar and come back into the fold of the people of God. And then they might have had significance and worth to the kingdom of God. But they just become irrelevant. Don't let your life be irrelevant. Pray to the Lord God Almighty that you would have no treachery against him and you would hang out with the people of God and stay in fellowship with the people that are following the word. Be in the word of God and cling to it. If it's more complex than that, if you need a five-paragraph explanation of your behavior, you're probably in the flesh. If your explanation of your behavior is one sentence and simple, I'm following the Word of God because I love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, and soul, you're probably in the Spirit. Search your heart on those things and take hope that there's a simple solution. And if you're convicted, it's because the Holy Spirit's working on your heart to get in fellowship with other believers. And if you've got to drive to do that, then drive to do that. If you need to be uh, going out of your way, quitting a job, moving and transplanting to be in fellowship, then do it. Or if you're leaving that fellowship to be a missionary, then do it wholeheartedly, knowing that you are blessed and that God's people are behind you and will support you and will help you plant that new church or do that missionary work because we love you and we miss you terribly, but we admonish you the same way Joshua did. Stick to the word of God. Do it for yourself. Be blessed. And if you need resources, let us know and, and you, can, you can go with whatever spoils you want to. So when the children of God are with you, we're with you forever no matter where you're at. But when you're not with the children of God, good luck. You know, pursue it all you got to. We're not, not going to make war with you, but do what you got to do to find out that it's empty and it's dead. So the goal of all of this is verse four, to find rest, find peace, find a way of life that you are energized by instead of exhausted by. And that is a blessing from God. And it is enough for us to be content and to be satisfied with the, the things God's given us that are glorifying. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, change us. Lord, help us to not just be reading this Bible tonight and to be reading it empty-like or to be reading it just going through the motions or doing it because we have to. Lord, may your holy, inspired word of God change our hearts. May we be at rest and at peace with the fruit of the Spirit. May we look around at our churches and see the word of God being taught a pastor that represents and looks like Jesus, and a fellowship of saints and brethren that minister to one another. Lord, and if we don't see it, guide us to a fellowship that does those things, that teaches your word, that fellowships and breaks bread and prays together. Lord, help us to be not great and impressive, but quite the opposite, 
Lord, help us to be nothing and foolish in the eyes of this world, but to be sweet and holy and pure in your eyes. May we pursue sanctity over sin. Modify us, Lord. Change us. Do a new thing in us and be a new creation inside of us so that we don't have to convince ourselves to love our church, but you generate in us a spirit that just loves our church and that we stay with the fellowship. Lord, for those people that have strayed and they've gone away and they've done their own thing, may they come back. And may we as a church welcome them back to the point of sacrificing our own territory to welcome them back. Just like the Israelites did, Lord, may we have such an open heart uh, of fellowship and love uh, that we always welcome people back. We welcome back the prodigal son. Like it, it doesn't matter what the sin is, what the problem is. If they want to repent and start trying to follow God's law, Lord, they got a place. We'll make a place. Uh, and if we need to move aside so they can be there, uh, help us to do that. Make us people of peace that use reason and inquiry and courage to have tough conversations so that we don't have to have war. Uh, Lord, and if people are in sin, let us just recognize the border they've created and, and, and move on with our work serving you and to not lose any sleep over it, Lord. It's tough and it's hard because we love these people and we don't want them to do that. But Lord, if we know that they're going away in the flesh and in sin, we, don't, we also don't want to have anything to do with them because we're more interested in you than in what they think of us. So Lord, help us to serve you, to honor you, to love you. And may we be defined by that love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.